A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to another edition of the Warrior U Podcast with your hosts, Bram Conley, Reese Dewar, and Coach Louise Benoit. These podcasts seek to provide you with ongoing motivation towards your goals. We will explore topics around nutrition, physical preparation, and motivation, as well as discussing what to expect from life in the military. For more information on today's podcast, be sure to visit the show notes, and don't forget the Mentors for Military podcast, too. Drop in and have a listen. Dr. John Lane enlisted as a soldier in the Army in 1989. After working as a soldier for 10 years and finishing a psychology degree, he then completed his medical degree at the University of Tasmania as an Army-sponsored undergraduate. He did his initial training in acute care medicine and emergency work and continued this as well as working in forensic medicine while serving with the 1st Health Support Battalion in Holsworthy until returning to Hobart in 2010 to do his psychiatry training. In 2013, He was deployed to the Middle East area of operations, spending most of the year away from home, six months of which was working with the US mental health team at the NATO Roll 3 Multinational Medical Unit in Kandahar, Afghanistan, as the first Australian Defence Force psychiatrist to be directly embedded with US forces. In 2015, he spent six weeks at various facilities in the United States, looking at military and veterans' mental health for a Churchill Fellowship. I enjoyed recording this podcast. John gave me much to think about in relation to how mental health issues are currently categorized. I hope you're able to learn something from this conversation as well. Enjoy. I read through your both your CV and your and your and your bio as well, and it's super impressive. What I gleaned from it is that you're one of those guys who can't stop achieving stuff, can't settle for learning something. You need to need to crack on and do something else, which I've I can't, I've come across a lot of guys like that, I guess, in my career. But your career has been something special, hasn't it? Do you want to give us a bit of a background on on what you've done? Mine's definitely a little bit different. So. I wasn't much of a student when I was at school. By year 12, I, I was sort of spending more time playing snooker and, you know, the local club because I went to high school in Canberra. And so year 12 was more interested in going up to the labour club and having a few games of snooker and maybe a beer or two than I wasn't studying. And so I joined the Army Reserve when I was in year 12 because they had a recruiting stand at the local shopping centre, one of the infantry battalions. And so I was just like, Cool. <laughs> more fun than going, more fun than studying and, you know, good part-time job and all that sort of stuff. And so I was like, why not? So I did my infantry, I did a recruit course and then my infantry IT before I'd finished year 12, a bunch of stuff with 4.3, um, RNSW in Canberra and then ended up halfway through sort of first semester of uni because I wasn't actually at uni much at all. I spent six weeks of the whole first semester of uni actually at school. I just thought, well, bugger that <laughs> and just went and joined the army instead. Went through 18 months of Duntroon, decided I got back classed at the end of first class because I had some some injuries and didn't complete all the work required for graduation. So that made me stop and sit back and, and think and sort of realised I was actually too young and too immature well, I felt I was too young and too immature to be an officer at that stage. So I actually transferred to other ranks 
and ended up in ordnance. God, first unit was field supply company, first field supply company, and that was in Holsworthy. And then the unit ended up going to Darwin, and that then became sort of one Basby and then one Sisby. I actually didn't have to go to Darwin because I decided to go to school, or back to school, and enrolled in an arts degree, English lit and psych part-time. And that was based out of Monash, Melbourne. So ended up getting posted to Melbourne, was at Schema for a while, and then was the director of uh, the, the admin sergeant for the director of medical services in Victoria in the mid-90s. And working with doctors and you know medical students and that sort of stuff, decided I want to do medicine. So my wife and I <laughs> you know, had a good talk about it. I still had to finish off that, that arts degree that I was doing part-time. And then... Decided to look bugger it, you know, I'll, I'll apply. Didn't get in the first year because I didn't have year 12 biology and ended up getting offered an honours scholarship for psychology here in Hobart and that was worth like 11 grand. So we wanted to live here because, you know, we've got horses and those sorts of things. So we just moved down here, transferred to the reserves, did the honours, did year 12 biology at the local college and ended up, ended up getting into medicine the next year. And during that couple of years with the reserves, I was actually posted to defence recruiting, but also working as a, as a field craft instructor with RMC, teaching reserve officer cadets. Yeah, and then, <laughs> then being a medical student. And then while I was a med student, wasn't doing a lot of army stuff, but ended up tutoring sort of physical sciences and all that sort of shit. Sort of focused on acute care, so emergency type stuff, and then did my return of service in 1HSB. And then decided to do psychiatry. So left full-time army 2010, came back to Hobart to do my psychiatry training. So yeah, and then five years of that, one year was spent not all in Afghanistan, eight months, well, eight month deployment, three months work up. So from the end of February through till just before Christmas, basically, over in Afghanistan. And I was with the NATO Roll 3 multinational medical unit, yeah, in, in CAF and Kandahar there. So yeah. that was that was six months. And that was awesome. That was really good. Yeah, that is. And you, you were the first Australian to be seconded, weren't you, to? Yeah. So I was actually, I went over for a quick visit and the mental health team there, I went, I was based in Dubai at AMAP and what had happened, I was supposed to go over as the senior medical officer for the last rotation at TK and the position was cut literally the week before we, we left and so they still took me and they decided to keep me at AMAP and I was there for a month and was lucky enough to get a quick visit to CAF for a few days to have a look at the mental health team and talk to the psychiatrists. There's two psychiatrists there and, and see what they were doing and stuff. And, and they were like, what are you doing working at AMAB? We need you here. So the, the skipper, the captain of, because it was a reserve, it's not reserve, sorry, it was a Navy run facility then, the skipper actually personally invited me to come and join them. And yeah, no no psychiatrist has actually done that from Australia before. So that was, that was awesome. Like your CV is just, mad <laughs> when i started reading through it i was like I could just do a whole show on your your own mental health given the fact that you just you weren't a perpetual student like most psychiatrists you've done it juggling like a million yeah. different positions in the military and yeah, yeah no I've, I've never just studied i've always been working full-time studying part-time or studying full-time and working nearly full-time i did a an undergrad because what, ha- what happened is when I changed over, so I changed over from an officer to, sorry, from a sergeant to an officer and the career advisor that I had at the time said to me, oh, look, you'll never need a degree. Don't worry about studying part-time. And that was just a red rag to a bull. So I looked around at what all the colonels had and they all had international relations degrees and I didn't realize that they all had it from ADFA. 
So I went and enrolled in university in New England and then did a what was meant to be a five to six year part-time degree. It took me 10 years part-time with two tours of <laughs> Afghanistan and, and a couple of tours of the Tag East under, under my belt at the same time. So I know how tough it is to, you know, I mean, even just one subject, a trimester was, if you wanted to get a distinction or above was a lot yeah. of work. Yeah. So well, well done, I guess. Oh yeah, sort of. Like, I keep on saying I'm just bloody stupid because of you know, because yeah. I, I worked out when I finished my fellowship in psychiatry. I worked out that I'd spent nearly 22 years studying when I finished, like after I left school. Yeah, and so yeah, that's that's a fair while. The thing is, once you find something you're sort of passionate about, yeah, like yeah. I I, yeah. I I do a lot of self study now that doesn't that isn't accredited on linguistics. Yeah, yeah and I find that as a starting point for anthropology it's quite it's quite an interesting starting point and i'm and i'm not doing a degree and i just find it interesting now so yeah that's what it comes down to and i mean you know you never stop learning i mean the day you stop learning is the day you pretty much start to die you know i mean there's there's just too much out there and there's too much the classic is you know that kruger dunning effect that that became popular last year with trump and um you know the less you know the more you think you know and the more you know the more you realize you don't know and i think that's what drives just ongoing learning full stop you know because there's so much that you don't that we just don't don't know and the problem with stuff like that is you don't know what you don't know and specialization is for insects Ah, yeah definitely that's and that's exactly right and i'm a generalist by nature you know i like to know a lot about a lot of different things that's just me as a person you know and you know my professional practice and my personal life and that sort of shit that's all the same sort of stuff yeah Yeah, generalist by nature because there's just lots of interesting things and so you know, we've talked about your background and we touched a little bit on your military service. Do you want to elaborate more on the on the military service or is or have you given it a good overview? What do you what do you think? My military service is really important to me and I'm actually really pleased that I did it the way I did, you know, as in I mean going into Duntroon very young because I'd only just turned eighteen when I when I started was a really big learning experience for me. I wasn't mature enough for it, basically. Do you think there's a and I've I've been wondering about this for a little while given my own experiences too, do you think there's a, a younger age of 17 and an older age of 17, if you know what I mean by that, like at a maturity level? No, ex- not exactly what you're saying. But at the end of the day, you know, a 17 or 18-year-old is still quite young and I just felt that I needed life experience, mm. you know, and you, you can't give someone the academic equivalent of life experience, Mm. you know, in terms of maturity and that sort of stuff. And, you know, realistically thinking about it from a medical perspective, our brains don't mature until we're about 25 anyway. So, you know, I think in terms of the responsibility that you have, there's good things and bad things about having officers who are younger. You know, if you want someone to go and be gung-ho and hoorah and all the rest of it, then having a young officer is, some, you know, sometimes a good thing to have. Mm. But if you want someone who can actually be a more effective leader, then you do need some sort of maturity. And generally, you'd hope that that comes with age. Because when you're talking about I mean, this is why we have jokes about first lieutenants, don't we? Mm. Oh, sorry, second lieutenants and, you know, and lieutenants and whatever else mm. because, you know, you still – you might be an officer but you're still wet behind the ears in terms of, you know, your age and therefore your leadership capacity and that sort of stuff. Whereabouts are you working now, John? 
Well, I mean, actually, I'm in private practice now. With psychiatry, you do psychiatry as a specialisation for medicine. So once you've got your medical degree and then you've worked for a couple of years as a doc, then you can specialise, whether that's surgery or general medicine as a physician or general practice, you know, it's as a GP type stuff or psychiatry. So with psychiatry, what you do is you do your first few years in a bunch of different areas. So you do your first 12 months on the acute wards and then you do sort of child and adolescence and consultation liaison work, drug and alcohol, a few things like that. And I ended up sort of knowing that I wanted to work with the military environment, sort of subspecialised in forensic psychiatry. And so that's like working in the prison system with offenders and that sort of stuff and then drug and alcohol and then sort of some general adult psychiatry too. So when I finished my, did my advanced training in, in forensics and drug and alcohol and then ran secure forensic mental health unit here in Hobart or here in Tasmania because we've only got one in the state for 12 months and then went into private practice so I could actually start seeing veterans because you can't, you know, you, you can't see military and veterans if, you, if you're working in the public system. So, yeah, so I started at the start of last year, yeah, so the start of 2016. Okay. So probably 60% of my practice is military and veterans. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's good because, you know, as I tell everyone, all of my patients and everything else, I basically grew up in the army, you know. That's that's what I learned and it might not work so well with the blue rinse set, but it certainly works well with the veteran population because I'm, I'm a fairly straight shooter. What you see is what you get. <laughs> and, and I've had a, quite a few people say, oh, God, you know, when I got here, I was expecting some little odd guy in a, in a bow tie and a suit, and I saw you. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, that's just, that just is what it is. Yeah. And that's something you're passionate about, isn't it, is veteran, veteran health, veteran mental health. Veterans mental health, definitely, yeah. So I'm still in the reserves now with the 3rd Health Support Battalion. That's the Specialist Health Service Battalion for, for the Army and do some sort of educational work for army in general not a lot of clinical work because we're still developing psychiatric services but yeah very passionate about it yep just so the listeners know the majority of people listening to this subscribing to the warrior you so it's it's all about helping them to realize their dreams to get into the military i'm not ambushing you with these questions i've given you a, a list of questions that i'm going to that i'm going to ask you and I, I don't want to scare anyone off because you know, because I think this is quite, some of the stuff is quite topical with regards to PTSD in particular, which I, I know you're you know, passionate about, and the diagnosis of it across the veteran community. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that occurs and, and how, how that's diagnosed from a mental health standpoint? Look, it is really interesting. And, and I suppose the first thing that you have to consider is that there's two sort of opposing things in, involved with this whole sort of thing about veterans mental health and whatever else and so the first thing is the clinical diagnosis yeah and so so let's let's call that ptsd for example as opposed to depression or anxiety or an adjustment disorder or whatever else because the second part is the organizational bureaucratic sort of side of the house and so in order to access benefits and treatment and those sorts of things, someone has to be given a diagnosis. Yeah? You can't just stick your hand up and go, look, you know, I'm feeling shit or I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling miserable or whatever else. You know, you've got to actually, a doctor, as in a psychiatrist, has to give you a diagnosis so that DVA can then fund the treatment and that sort of stuff. And so what we tend to do is perhaps, I wouldn't say abuse the diagnosis of PTSD, but 
you know, every person experiences things differently, regardless of whether we're talking mental health conditions or, you know, just the taste of a cup of coffee or whatever it is. Everyone experiences things differently. And so when we're talking about the stress and distress involved with mental health, for example, people will present differently. But what we often have to do is lump people into boxes as in a diagnostic category in order to sort of, you know, have them be able to access treatment services or support services or whatever else. Mm. So if we just talked about PTSD, the strict diagnosis of PTSD in terms of traumatic memories and, you know, the behavioural consequences of that would be about 20% of the problem because the other 80% of the problem of people who've got something like PTSD is based on their responses to what they've been through. And so what I'm talking about here is, is um, you know, drinking too much, not exercising, poor diet, you know, withdrawing from family and friends, losing relationships, all, all those sorts of things. Because when you're a miserable, irritable, grumpy, <laughs> you know, not a fun person to be around who drinks too much or or whatever, you're going to lose friendships, you're going to lose relationships, and you're really going to struggle to survive. And that has a major impact on your mental health. Right. So it's not just the trauma stuff, it's the reactions to, this, to the trauma stuff that happens as well. Because if we, even if you talk about PTSD, for example, like realistically, PTSD is a, is a toxic exposure to stress. And so that means that combat PTSD is different from sexual assault PTSD, which is different from a whole bunch of other sorts of, of PTSD. So, you know, and again, the, the diagnosis of PTSD is, is constructed by the American Psychiatric Association, you know, and they have a whole bunch of diagnostic criteria that says this is a diag, you know, this is the stuff you need to meet a diagnosis of PTSD. But, you know, you know yourself, God, during your selection course, for example, you can't tell me that wasn't stressful. <laughs> and you can't tell me that you wouldn't have had, you know, dreams about that or, or, or you know, memories of things that happened to you on your selection course <laughs> because it was a very, very stressful thing. For some people, it would have been traumatic if the stress was too much, particularly if they didn't make it through. And then you can say that, you know, being separated from the military on medical grounds, like a medical discharge, is traumatic for a lot of people as well too because of the identity changes, you know, the lack of sense of self, the lack of functionality, all the other things that, are, that sort of accompany that diagnosis. So at the end of the day, it's not necessarily just what happens to you. It's how you deal with what happens to you and how you manage with what happens to you. That makes the biggest difference in terms of outcomes. Now, that's very, it's very interesting and, you know, I think one of the things I was writing some notes down as you talked, and I think one of the things I wrote down was toxic exposure to stress. I thought that was a, yeah, that's a good way to to describe it. Obviously, obviously, yeah. something traumatic has to happen, or there has to be a cumulative effect of trauma yeah. to then suffer from post traumatic stress disorder. Even and even though you say everyone experiences things slightly differently. You know, I think that there's a level of there has to be a level of threshold that's reached for it to be deemed a traumatic experience. Definitely, there is. But the other thing to look at it as well too, you can say, okay, well, what's a traumatic experience? So if I see a motor vehicle accident, for example, I'm involved in a, in a car crash, you know, and um, or I've witnessed a car crash and I've seen someone die. Like that, by definition, is, by definition, is considered to be a traumatic experience, isn't it? Yeah, but. 
how much is, is that actually? Well, <laughs> that's the problem. You're seeing the guidelines. Yes, it is. Actually, it's traumatic experience. But I will not put you on the spot, and I won't. I'm not. I'm not going to no, argue no. with someone who's a specialist. But what I am going to say is, you know, you said there's a, a definition of a traumatic experience. But what is the definition of a yeah. traumatic experience? So, according to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, we're now up to version five as of 2013. Sort of the first criterion has to be. So a threatened death or a near-death experience or somewhere, some, some sort of exposure to an experience where someone thought they were going to die or thought someone else was going to die. Given that baseline, I don't think that we would put the selection course, for instance, in the same basket as a traumatic experience. Yeah. It, it's a perceived yeah. stressful – there's stresses – on the body, yes, but it, but it's not traumatic stresses. There, no, but the difference is, is that they're prolonged. So if you have one stressful event, you can recover from it. But what happens when you see something or you're experiencing something that's traumatic, and you've got this crap running through your brain and you can't actually go to sleep? When that starts to, so sleep is probably the biggest indicator, the most sensitive indicator for something actually started to go wrong. And so you know yourself. Look at the selection course. What is the first thing they do to you to start screwing with your head on the course? Keep you awake, stop you from sleeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that reduces your capacity, your cognitive capacity, therefore you process things mm-hmm. and reduces your resilience and so your reserves in terms of your capacity to cope with stress and, and all the other sort of stuff. When you talk about traumatic sort of things, mm-hmm. the problem is is that you know, for a diagnostic label to experience something once on one occasion, uh, to me, doesn't necessarily cut the mustard because it doesn't consider what happens when you put people under non-life-threatening circumstances, maybe, but prolonged stress and prolonged exposure. And so you could say torture, for example, is, is another form of that. So whether physical torture or emotional torture or mental torture or whatever else. And so your life might not have been threatened. So, for example, you might not think that you are going to die but if there's intense pain associated with it if there's tense intense distress associated with it and it's prolonged it's going to have some sort of an effect so like that that emotional like gaslighting or something like that where you're changing someone's thoughts over a period of time yeah basically yeah you could develop ptsd from that but see, that's the problem. Is it actually PTSD? You know, strictly, it's a little bit rubbery. So it's a, it's right. a, it's a, it's a stress of some sort. It's a, and it's probably yes. a mental health condition of some sort. It's just not. And so you, you're going to have a stress reaction to it, yeah. and that might well end up with depression. But what I was trying to get across before is there's going to be behaviour responses to those stress reactions, isn't that? Some of them are going to be adaptive and, and, you know, adaptive coping mechanisms in terms of you going and having a good lie down, sleeping yeah. your way through it, wake up, process it, it's all done, sorted. But if you don't have the capacity to engage in those sorts of things, you know, your operational tempo is too high, particularly as a commander. And, you know, again, on, on your deployment, it's... Same as I'm sure on my deployments, a lot of commanders were only getting, you know, four to six hours sleep a night if they were lucky for prolonged periods of time because the operational tempo was so high or the workload was so high or whatever else. That's every course I've done in the Army. (laughs) Grade two. Yeah. Yeah, grade two. God, yes. I think one of the issues that we have with uh, not diagnosing is defining PTSD is that prior to – Prior to Vietnam, for instance, we saw shell shock as the precursor to post-traumatic stress disorder because shell shock is easy to explain. And I mean, I've seen I've seen guys with shell shock. You know, I've seen that yeah. myself. 
which not many yeah. not many Australians have seen that. Oh, by the way, but I've no, seen. No, I, ha- I haven't. That's I've, exactly I've, right because I've, I've never seen, seen someone who's no. been you know exposed to prolonged barrages and those sorts of things. Yeah. But you see people who come out of a combat situation, yeah, and their brains are rattled. Like you see someone who's been hit in a, in a bomb blast or whatever else, their brains are rattled. No, well, I mean, even even more than that. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I mean that's stressful. That 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 but that those ex, those explosions are not of themselves the cause of PTSD. You know, you get you hit an IED with a bushmaster. The 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 explosion and the you know the 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 impact of the blast can create a mental health issue in itself. But what I'm talking yeah. about is like from a personal experience, we we were targeted by a bomber, a remote control IED bomber. Who lured my platoon? Lured. I I mistakenly put us in a bad village that was abandoned, and I had my whole platoon in this village. And this guy started to set off remote-controlled IEDs. We knew they were remote-controlled IEDs because when the first one went off, no one was killed. So, so then, then what happened is we were radioing each other while we were moving, and then another one went off, and then another one, and then we realised we we were. What and then everyone I told I basically called out a mind's freeze and we all just stayed where we were, but the fact of the matter is that played more of more on our minds than any of the combat yeah. that we did in Afghanistan. By the way, my, sni- yeah. my sniper killed him, but you know because they, they worked out who he was. The guys in Overwatch worked out where he was and who he was, and they engaged yeah. him. But to see the guys after that, the second order yeah. effect of that was that it took a little bit of time for us to recover from that. You know, yeah. a couple of hours. Yeah, but en- enough that you realise that it that that plays with your psyche. You know, that does. Yeah, and and I think that's where I talk about you know the cumulative effect of those sorts of things over time. Mm. And so, like the World War One definition of shell shock, or even World War Two, you know, being exposed to prolonged artillery barrages, that sort of stuff. There's concussive damages, mm. and there's the helplessness and the fear, and just the complete uncertainty, which is what you're talking about as well, too, where you just don't know where the next explosion's going to be. Yeah, that's and tough. Is it going to be you that's going to take it? That was that was yeah. tough to reconcile. Yeah, mm, for sure. Yeah. At the end of the day, though, it's the coping mechanisms that are important for that, and it's the maladaptive ones like drinking, like bottling it up, like like not being able to deal with things effectively that makes them grow like a cancer effectively and then dominate your life and that's that's where we have people that have fallen over and are sort of quote unquote broken are we missing other defining statements or other defining names for for some mental health so that we're putting everyone in this pdsd category that perhaps there's other variations that we need to be discussing so that people can get the help that they actually need as opposed to a carte blanche, this guy's got PTSD and then people get called into question for it because they were involved in less less than kinetic combat in some cases. Yeah. That's the hard part about it too because, you know, there's a a bunch of different... Because guys like me call it out and we're not... And it's not necessarily the soft... 
thing that we should yeah. be doing that the 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 the, mm. the human the human element you know is missing when we start when guys with my background starts calling bullshit on mm. it you know mm. then then what happens is people who have been affected by certain situations are not getting the help they need and that's exactly what they're too ashamed to then stand up and actually ask for help because they go, why do I deserve it? I was never in combat, you know, no one shot at me, whatever else. So there's all there's all these people out there as well. Right, got it, yeah. There's all, all sorts of different things because so when we talk about PTSD, we talk about sort of intrusive memories. So, you know, things come back to you about whatever it was that you experienced and whether that's in dreams or during waking moments or whatever else, you know, the triggering thing that you, you might hear about. So... I don't know about you, but, you know, God, when you're going past roadworks and you see the concrete barriers, the portable barriers that look a little bit like, <laughs> you know, a little bit like the, the blast barriers you see in the compounds and those sorts of things, that's something that's a triggering memory for some people. It can be a whole bunch of different things. But then you get the coping mechanisms of, of isolation, social isolation. So people withdraw from friendships. They withdraw from social situations because they're anxious, yeah, because they've got a, a sense of uncertainty or a sense of anxiety within themselves. That means they start to withdraw from normal life because they don't want to trigger that that anxiety and that panic. Mm. Oftentimes it's then fear of having a panic attack when they're in public places because there's too many people around because they can't see what's going on around them when they're walking down a shopping aisle. They can't see what's around the corner. They can't you know, identify where the potential threats are coming from and that sort of stuff. You know, so, so those are sort of key issues. And then when you take the the, the functional changes that happen in terms of, you know, drinking more to sleep because you can't sleep because you can't get the scrape off your mind, you know, then you've got the relationship breakdowns then mm. you've got financial problems because you're not able to work and so on and so on and so on. So it's the functional deficits that you end up having to do as much with not just the trauma stuff. Sort of my views on veteran victimization, fairly well known, and I'll, in case you yeah. don't, in case you don't know, I believe that if you're a if you're a veteran that you've got you've you've done your job and you've got a a great background and story for future employers and you've had some amazing experiences as a veteran. I personally feel that veterans aren't victims and I hate that. I hate that narrative to be honest. And I want to change that narrative, you know. Yeah. I agree with you. Just put it out there. I yeah. strongly agree with you. And I feel that the best way to try and change this narrative is to first of all talk about DVA and the advocates, you know, and the fact that the advocates, I mean, that's an industry, you know. They don't get paid if people aren't sick. Well, the advocates, most of them are volunteers. That's the problem. So they don't get paid anyway. But um, this is what I was talking about before in terms of the system and having to meet, you know, specific, you know, criteria, I suppose, because – to me, part of the problem is that we have a disability-based service. So you have to be broken and you have to prove that you're broken according to a set of standards in order to access care. So that's one thing. The second thing is we're liability-based. So, you know, you can't just access care. There has to be liability proven. So someone has to be responsible for it. That, to me, is a big issue as well because once you start talking about liability, you're talking ambulance cases to some degree, aren't you? You know, I got hurt, someone has to pay. <laughs> yep. I have to be compensated for it. And in order to be compensated for it, I have to prove that I've got this disorder. Yeah. And it's not easy to prove that you've got a disorder necessarily. You know, you have to adopt a sick role, don't you? You know, you have to say, I've got PTSD, I've got depression, anxiety, I've got back pain, I've got this, I've got whatever else. Look, and, and here's the proof of it. And I'll keep on 
getting tests and doing whatever else so I can prove that I've got this particular disorder, yeah? Mm-hmm. And so the compensation, the liability, everything else is based on having that disorder. It's not based on what you can do now. It's based on what you can't do now. To me, that's a problem because you have to prove what you can't do so that you can get access to care, you know, incapacity payments or whatever else it is. Whereas what I would rather focus on is what people can do and how they can improve their lives. And so that narrative that you were talking about in terms of people being victims, I think that's where it comes from because, you know, people have to invest so much time and effort in, in, in being a victim, basically, because mm-hmm. that's the way the system's set up, isn't it? People have to fight to fit into, into specific categories, you know, to access help from DVI or whatever else. And like you said, there has to be an industry around it because it's a bureaucratic nightmare, <laughs> you know? Like, it's complicated. Yeah, and yet there's people out there who, who actually really need help as opposed to who are chasing taxis. And that's exactly right, and that's where it, it gets really awkward because, again – we have a system that's based on strict criteria for all sorts of different things and, you know, you have to tick all those boxes for all those different yeah. criteria in order to access care and, you know, God, yeah. No, it's, it's, bro- it's broken, yeah. yeah. It needs someone like you yeah. to sort it out, John. No, mate. <laughs> like, honestly, I, I put a submission into the Senate inquiry last year saying that what, the, what we should be doing is just going, you know, anyone – that has problems that should just be because we have non-liability healthcare now for, for five mental health conditions so depression anxiety PTSD alcohol abuse and substance abuse and so if you've served in the military for one day you can go to a GP say you can get access to care for these conditions without anyone having to prove liability for it or, or then give you compensation for it and that sort of stuff mm. and that's more of what we should see they should just flat out cover healthcare so that we can focus on getting people better Mm. because as a doctor, I cannot make anyone better until they've sorted out all the liability and compensation crap first. You 100% can get better from what I've seen of guys with- with Hell yes. Yes. So one one of the things I noticed impacting guys from my unit in particular was depression from leaving a high performing team. So the network- their support base has fallen away around them yep. and they yep. have a, 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 a like a, an anxiety behind no longer yep. fulfilling a really important role. Yep. And, I, and I think that that gets misdiagnosed as PTSD and, and yep. then what they do yep. is they, yep. they start to believe their own narrative. Yeah, and this is this is what I was talking about to you before. You know, what you're talking about there in, in many ways is what we call an adjustment disorder. And so an adjustment disorder is what people often get before they get a diagnosis of PTSD. And so that's adjusting to different circumstances in your life. And, you know, in terms of the warrior you stuff, you can see people who come into the military who haven't really considered what it's going to be like. Yeah you know, losing all their personal freedoms, you know, the rigors involved from a physical perspective, let alone from the mental challenges and those sorts of things. And so they can't make that adjustment to what's going on. And one of the things that, one of the things that I sort of (laughs) pride myself on is ensuring that we give a no bullshit assessment to a guy. You know, if you're not, if you're not meeting the grade with the little lessons that we give you each week, or the little physical training, you know, program that you're yeah, on, don't like it. just just don't don't waste your time. Yeah, and that's but so that 
adjustment process. Let's think about that for a second, especially in terms of the, the people that you were talking about. Yeah. It requires some sort of mental flexibility, doesn't it? So you have to say, here was me when I was an operator, you know, gung-ho, fit, really highly professional team around me, hopefully good leadership, but, you know, and, and strong support from your mates and a challenging and worthwhile job, you know. And so when I talk to people about military culture and military identity, a big thing with military people is that our sense of identity comes from our jobs, what we do. Yeah. So the role I play means that I have some sort of a purpose in my life and that's how I get my identity through achieving that purpose, achieving that mission, performing that particular role. So if I change someone's role and I change the structure around the performance of that role, that has to change their identity, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? (laughs) So if I take an operator and, and you know, take them from one of the teams on the West Coast or the East Coast or whatever, and I put them in a desk job in Canberra, what's going to happen? <laughs> oh, I can tell you, I did it. <laughs> They're going to get depressed, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Yes, they are, because they've lost a lot of what was worthwhile to them mm. in terms of the mm. performance mm. of their job and that sort of stuff. But I tell you what, yeah. uniforms look a lot better when they're ironed. Mm. <laughs> and you have to shave too, by the way. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That, that that sense exactly. of that sense of identity is a you know I never really yeah. I never really thought about it, but I guess when I left the military, I went through a few different identity, you know, self identity, yeah. self identifying, you know, jobs. So yeah. Well, we try a few different things on to see how they fit, don't we? Mm. You know, and then we end up discovering who we are as people and realise that identity actually comes from within, not from external. It's not an externally derived thing. And I suppose this is where we set people up to fail from a military perspective, though, because when you join the military, we change your identity from an individual to what's called a collective identity, so a group identity. So you are now not a person, you are a soldier. And we train you and you do all those sorts of things to break down that sense of the individual. And again, you know, selection courses are even more intensive examples of that because it's it's not just about you as an individual, it's about you as and how you perform as a member of the group, as a part of the team. So when someone is injured and can't perform like that anymore, you have significant problems with identity because what you actually get then is <laughs> so first of all from from the, the physical health perspective, you're no longer part of the group. You can't do the stuff that everyone else can do. So you're not with the group. So you're isolated. Second thing is there's a lot of guilt involved. I'm letting my mates down. And third thing is the loss of sense of self because I'm worthless now because I can't do these sorts of things. And I've been isolated because the treatment always happens in isolation from the rest of the group, doesn't it? You know, you can't be at work because you can't do the job. Mm. So you're left to deal with all this sort of stuff by yourself. Mm. And so then, you know, you end up getting medically discharged or whatever else. And that doubly reinforces this whole sort of process again. You know, you're so fucking useless now that you, know, you can't even be in the military. So, and particularly when we talk about mental health type conditions where you can't necessarily look at someone and go, yeah, well, they're missing an arm or they're missing a leg. That's why they got discharged. Yeah. 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 A lot murkier. Yeah. A mm. lot murkier. And, mm. and so, you know, that's not necessarily PTSD as well, but it's certainly going to exacerbate any trauma that anyone's sort of experienced. And then because of the disability system that we have, you have to then point to the trauma that you had so that you can actually get, you know, <laughs> incapacity payments or whatever else because you can't work. So, so basically what we've yeah. got happening at the moment is it's a broken system 
we've got some people who mean well in the advocates who are trying to help people by putting them into any category they can sort of get them into. They, those, those individuals need to find a way to prove that they're sick before they can get treatment, which is half the issue, which then, yes. which then creates a victim mentality. Well, if, if that's the criteria that you have to meet in order to get help, then, of course, you're, gonna, you're going to make things fit, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, obviously, 90% of the times it will fit anyway because you can demonstrate that you've got hearing loss. You can demonstrate on, on a CT scan that, you know, you've got these bulging discs or fractures or whatever else. You know, I mean, you can demonstrate that sort of stuff. And, and I suppose that's what it's about. But the trickier part comes with the mental health conditions when it's, <laughs> you know, when we're effectively talking about distress and how do you prove something like that? It, you know, it's hard, isn't it? Because you can't prove what's going on in someone's head very you easily. You can't can prove you? they don't. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things I find with my own stress is if I'm too emotionally involved in the moment, then I get stressed. Whereas I study linguistics and as a precursor to anthropology and quite often, if I take a step back and look at look at what's going on around me as a as a lesson in human nature, I, I find that I'm not stressed about the situation. Generally, yeah. I generally I look at someone yeah. and go, "You fucking dickhead," you know. And 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 then I and then I unpack why they're being the way they are, or why they're acting that way, or even yeah. And I'm just wondering, is there? I guess if we are observers of human nature. Is it is it better for us to reconcile other people's actions if we can take a step back and just watch it and wonder why they are the way they are? Uh, I mean, really interesting question and, and lots, lots to unpack in that as well too because being able to be an observer of things means effectively that you're not personally involved and so you haven't taken things personally. And so if you see someone who's acting like an idiot and you are able to say, God, that guy's a fucking dickhead, mm. as opposed to that guy is being a dickhead to me mm. personally. Mm. Because when we personalise things, that's when we start to get emotionally involved and emotionally affected by what's going on. Yeah. And so it's the capacity to depersonalise things that actually makes it more effective and allows us to step back and be an observer of things more than anything else. Okay. And so we use that in a therapeutic environment particularly with anxiety and panic and memories and all those sorts of things mm. and say, yes, I'm, I'm having these feelings, but it doesn't mean I need to engage with these fears or these anxieties or these worries. Same as that guy who's in the car next to me is ranting and raving and screaming because he thinks I cut him off or did something. He's being a dickhead. So what? <laughs> Move on. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Let it go. Yeah, don't need to personalise it. Don't need to be involved with it. Don't need to engage with it. Can let it go. Can move on. And so then, yes, that keeps you more calm and yeah. more stable because at the end of the day, the more calm and more stable you are, the more effectively you can live your life yeah. and the less stressed and distressed you're going to be. And just go back to your training routine or the training regime that you had for you guys going over there. Mm. That was about depersonalizing, wasn't it? That was about them not being emotionally involved and invested in what they were doing but going through the motions. Yeah, I mean, I might, I might be a little bit disingenuous in the way that I've described it because what I was trying to do and what I didn't tell them that I was doing was I was creating structure around critical incidents. So what I would what I would do is bang, this guy's dead. Okay, what's the procedure? Or bang, this car's hit an IED. What's the procedure? There was yeah. a structure around yeah. what we were doing so that people could disengage from the moment and be involved in the structure. Yes. And I found that that was my secret ingredient to the way I thought that I was inoculating for PTSD was to have 
a certain structure around the stimulus when the stimulus comes in. And 99% of the time when you're not being remote controlled IED'd, it worked. It works really well, but but it, what you're actually doing there is you're reducing, by getting people used to the emotional arousal that happens when some uh, uh, gunfire, like, like, uh, like a shot suddenly goes off, whatever else. And so what you're doing is, so, I mean, this is why we have drills, don't we? You know, because drills don't require conscious thought. They don't require emotional investment. It's just going through a set of actions. And the person that can go through the set of actions the fastest is the person that's going to come out the victor in a firefight. That's what we call training, isn't it? Yep. And so that's what you did with your guys. Mm-hmm. Because by exposing them to situations where they were going to get emotionally stressed at first, mm-hmm. but then, you know, getting them used to it, <laughs> then all they had to focus on was the drills that they were carrying out mm. and the actions that they were carrying out, and that made them incredibly good operators. When you said that just then about the round going off, that just brings back so flooding back this fe- <laughs> these amazing <laughs> feelings of euphoria. You know, we would be driving towards a village, then we'd get out of our vehicles and the women would be streaming out of the other side of the village and we'd go into certain routines to close the village down and to move in on it because we wanted to search it. And you just had this real dread, this real, this real dread foreboding going on, and the Taliban are talking over their radios that we're listening to. That you know, you understand what I mean by that. And then that first round would go off, and this just this amazing feeling of release yes. when that first round would go off. It's like great. Now yeah. we get to unleash, you know. Yeah. And it's such an amazing feeling. I've never had it again yeah. since Afghanistan. And you know, yeah. even even in big competition, sporting competitions and stuff that I've been involved in, it doesn't feel the yeah. same. Yeah. No, it can't because there isn't as much writing on it, isn't it? Is there? You know what I mean? Yeah. Nothing, when you're talking about life and death, you know, nothing else rides on that anywhere near as much. I wonder if people yeah. get addicted to that. It's easy enough to think of it. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, very much. Very much. Yeah. yeah, very, very, very much. And you see a lot of people do that as well too. Right. Yeah. So my, my final question, John, and I'm, I'm hoping you give me the answer I want to hear here. <laughs> um, if, you, uh, if you could share a chat over over a coffee with one person, dead or alive, who would it be, and what would you ask them? So two people. So the first one was Erwin Rommel. Right. Yeah. I did not yeah, see just, that coming. No, I didn't think you would. So you got, anyway, got, got a question in German to ask him? Oh Jesus, in German. So one question. I don't know whether I could do the whole one question part, yeah. but. But my question to him would be along the lines of how the hell did he cope? Yeah. You know, right. and you think of this guy who was yeah. an amazing tactician, yeah. an amazing strategist, an amazing leader, everything. And, right. and how did he cope living under Hitler? And then what made him then go and be involved in the bomb plot later on to try and assassinate Hitler? Yeah. Because right? what that guy must have gone through would have just blown anyone's fucking mind. I mean, what does it show? What does it show in his understanding of future concepts if he realised that Hitler needed to be knocked off. Yeah. And especially given his background, you know, his Prussian heritage, you know, his family, all these sorts of things, and the amount of courage and strength that would have taken him to actually do that is amazing. The other thing I would have loved to have done is sit down and sat down and had a a, a rum and a cigar with Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, right. The author. Yes. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that'd yeah. be pretty fucking fun. Yeah, yeah. that'd just be awesome. I've got just a feeling he'd, shits and giggles. he'd be yeah. the most interesting man in the world, I think. He's that guy. <laughs> I, I thought maybe you'd say Sigmund Freud. Uh, 
I guess that's too cliche now, isn't it? Now I think of it. Uh, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Freud's important, you know, because he got a lot of people thinking about a lot of different sorts of things. You know, he, he was just sort of latched onto because he was he was a very good showman as well too. So there was an industry built up about because in those days that's what it was like. There was an industry type thing as well too. So yeah, yeah. All right, John John Lane, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on Coffee and Combat and I'm, I'm really hoping we can get a, enough interesting questions to give you another call and pick your brains because having access to a psychiatrist who's also got the military background and the you know grooming, mental health grooming that you've got, you know, it's pretty special really. Cool. I appreciate it very much, mate. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.